This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. It's good to see you here this morning. We are in week seven of our summer message series, Colossians, the Supremacy of Christ. As Pastor Cameron mentioned, you see a lot of people in the red t-shirts today. That's for Royal Family Kids Camp, a free week of camp that Christian Chapel provides for uh, kids in foster care. It's for kids who are seven to 11 years old. And so because of our topic today, the supremacy of Christ over legalism and the fact that this is Royal Family Sunday and I have to wear my camp shirt anyways, I am fulfilling one of my lifelong dreams, which is kind of a lame dream, admittedly, to preach in shorts on Sunday morning. So you're here with me. If you're already offended uh, by this, this message is for you. so just pay attention. And I, I don't know where you grew up. I, I grew up um, where I, I don't remember wearing shorts to church until I was like in high school. And then it was only okay on Wednesday nights for youth group because that wasn't like real church. Right? Like, uh, I, I think I was in eighth grade before I even got to wear jeans to church on a Sunday night. Uh, there were no jeans on Sunday morning ever because if, if you were in shorts or jeans in church and Jesus came back... I don't know. I mean, these, these were just some of the implications that were, that were given at times. And, and so this morning, I am enjoying this, even if no one else is. But um, So the supremacy of Christ. We've been talking now, this is week seven, about how Jesus is before all things and in him all things hold together. About how he is completely unique in his authority, his power, his wisdom. There is no one like him. There is nothing next to him. And exploring how Paul teaches us these truths over and over and over again in the letter to the Colossians. One of the things that we've been doing to try to remind ourselves that that's not just true in here on Sunday morning, but it's true out there on Monday through Saturday as well, is just sending out a little text message reminder through the week. So if you haven't been with us, you can uh, get in on that. Just text Christian Chapel to 31996, and you'll get a text Thursday, Friday, Saturday, one of those days each week that's either a a scripture from Colossians or um, just a, a reminder of something that we've talked about, about the supremacy of Christ, designed to help us look up and see him as the Lord over all, not just when we worship together, but in each moment of every day. This morning, we are going to be in Colossians chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 16 and talk about the supremacy of Christ over legalism. So we'll, um, we're going to conclude today with communion and a prayer for our Royal Family Kids Camp staff that are here with us. But along the way, uh, I think we're going to discover some truths that are really freeing for all of us and are probably especially meaningful to some of our, our Royal Family staff who are going out to serve for a week at camp. So if you have your Bible, Colossians chapter 2 starting in verse 16. If you don't, it'll be here on the screen for you. But Paul writes, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such people go into great detail about what they have seen, and their unspiritual minds puff them up with idle notions. They have lost connection with the head from which the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of the world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based merely on human commands and teachings. 
Such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, yet they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So Paul begins in verse 16 with this statement, therefore, what's he say? Help me out. There we go. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you. And so one of the things that my seminary professors taught me, and I'm sure many of you have heard as well, is that anytime you read the scriptures and you read the word therefore, you ask, what is that there for? Because it's always a connecting statement, connecting what's about to be said with what has just been said. So in this case, Paul is saying, therefore, don't let anyone judge you. And then he begins to lay out all the reasons you shouldn't let other people judge you. Don't let them judge you by what you eat, what you drink, what you wear, the day of the week you worship, your spiritual experiences or lack thereof, how uh, much you withdraw from society. Saying basically, resist every form of spiritual umpires who want to determine who's in or who's out based off of anything but Jesus. Christ. But he starts it with therefore. And so again, he's pointing us back and he's saying that the things he's about to say are true because of what he's already said. So if you weren't with us two weeks ago, I want to back up and read uh, another extended passage. It's uh, Colossians 2 verses 9 through 15. And this is what Paul is pointing back to. He's saying, because this is true, it's true that no one should judge you based off of these other requirements. In verse 9, he says, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your sinful nature was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Paul is saying, look, all of this is true. He's pointing us back. This is the, the, the gospel made simple, made plain to us. When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive in Christ. It, it's all about God's action and our reception of that. It's not about our effort. It's not about our ability. It's about, hey, when you were a sinner, he forgave you. He took everything you've ever done, all the wrong, all the sin, all the shame, all the guilt, and he nailed it to the cross. He humiliated it. He made a spectacle of it through his death and his resurrection. And then when he gets to verse 16, that's when he says, therefore, let no one judge you. Don't let them judge you by your observance of religious festivals, of new moons, of Sabbath days, of what you eat or what you drink. He's warning us, you have been saved and set free in Christ. Do not now become a slave to legalism. Now, legalism is one of those words that means different things to different people. But for, for our purposes today, when we talk about legalism, we're talking about any effort to earn or to keep our salvation by law keeping or rule keeping. Right? In Christian theology, legalism is the elevation of the law above the gospel. In Colossae, what they were dealing with was false teachers who were coming in to these, these young Christians and they were teaching them, Jesus is good. But to, to be fully assured of your standing as God's people, you need to obey the Jewish law. And so that's what they're telling them. What, what you eat, what you drink, religious festivals, new moons, these are all Jewish observances of the law. In the Old Testament, there are over 600 laws given to the Jewish people by which they differentiate themselves from the world around them and show their commitment to the Lord. 
And what these teachers are doing is they're coming in to these new Christians and telling them to be really, really certain. You need to go ahead and obey the law as well. Jesus is good. He's brought you in. Now, your observance of the law is what's going to keep you in. And Paul is writing to push back against this, and he wants absolutely nothing to do with it. You see, the, the problem that Paul had with legalism is the same problem we still have today. It's that legalism says the work of Christ was not enough, but my rule-keeping or law-keeping is somehow necessary to perfect or to finish what he started for me. Legalism puts the emphasis back on me and my ability to do the right things, to say the right things, to earn God's favor. And it shows itself in all kinds of form. Legalism can look like self-righteousness. It can look like anger. It can come out as shame or as guilt when we're not able to meet those requirements. It probably is most poisonous. Uh, the, the most poisonous way it comes out is it comes out in pride where we kind of just become full of ourselves, of like, well, look at me, I'm so good at this, when, when honestly your ability to keep the law and to follow the rules has far more to do with the culture in which you were born and the home in which you were raised than it does your own personal self-discipline. Right? But, but legalism kind of makes us think, no, I'm, I'm better than all those other people. Right? Like Jesus died for all, yeah, that's true, but, but look at how much better I am than all of them. And, and you think of legalism, and it, it's, it's just filtered all through church history, and it looks different in every period, but at its core, legalism is just this never-ending, ever-evolving list of do's and don'ts. And so it's going to look different from culture to culture and place to place. Legalism in the 21st century looks a lot different than legalism in the first century. Legalism in Tulsa looks a lot different than legalism in California. Legalism in the United States looks different than legalism in South America or Europe or Asia or Africa. But everywhere the church has ever been planted, legalism comes and it tries to dress itself up as holiness and slowly siphons our faith away from Christ and puts it in our ability to follow the rules. And Paul, again and again and again, not, in not just in Colossians, but in all of his letters, is vehemently against legalism because it is trying to detract from what Christ has done and put the emphasis back on what you and I can do. And Paul's whole theology of salvation is very simple. You are an enemy of God. You are powerless. You are weak. You are hopeless. And Jesus intervened on your behalf. So what in the world do you think you can add to his perfect and finished work? You, you consider the, the foolishness of legalism and, and think of the, the campers we're going to take. Tomorrow morning, they're going to show up here at Christian Chapel, and these are 7 to 11-year-old boys and girls who the qualifications for Royal Family Kids Camp are terrible. These children have been abused, abandoned, or neglected in, in some significant way that has caused them to be removed from their home and placed in the foster care system. They're, this is not a fun camp that kids want to go to. It's, it's not one you would ever want a friend or your family member to qualify for. But if our message to these campers this week is, hey, if you want a good life, you just need to get really good at following the rules. You know, legalism boils it down to if, if you want good things to happen, you need to be good. And if bad things happen, it's because you're a bad person. It's not a life-giving message. We do with our, our staff, those of you who've been through the Royal Family staff training, you might remember some of the speakers we've had over the past few years. And what they do is they, they come in and, and everybody who, who goes to camp goes through this period of training. They come in, they talk to us. And over the, the past couple of years, especially, we've had some speakers that come in and talk to us about the way that abuse as an infant or in your toddler years as a young child, the way it kind of changes the brain of that child. 
And they, they've told us repeatedly, several of them have told us that, that abuse as an infant or abuse as a toddler, abuse as a young child, it, it literally rewires that child's brain to where the, the decisions that maybe your child or my child would make where they clearly see right or wrong and they know they're going to make the right decision because the wrong one brings consequences, that the more abuse a child has experienced, sometimes the harder it is, and, and it can be almost physically impossible for them to make the right choice in that situation because of the horrors that they've endured. And then Christians are going to come to a child who has been hurt and, and just rewired in such a traumatic way by sin, and we're really going to come and say, well, you just need to do a better job of following the rules. This is why Paul is so adamant. I mean, if you want to see Paul at his best facing people who are legalistic in their faith, go read Galatians where he tells these people who are advocating for circumcision as a sign of salvation. He says, I wish they would go the whole way and just emasculate themselves. He leaves no room for doubt about what he really believes for people who pursue or teach anything that, that any kind of works-based theology of salvation. Instead, he says, no, it's through Christ alone that we are saved. And he shows the supremacy of Christ over legalism by reminding us all of these things are just a shadow. And the reality has come. Paul's reiterating something Jesus taught us. After the resurrection, when Jesus is walking along the road to Emmaus, there are men walking with him and they don't recognize him. And as he's walking, it says that Jesus started with the law and the prophets and he began to show them how everything in the law and the prophets pointed to him. And Paul's getting at the same idea here when he says all of those things, all of the laws, every story in the Old Testament, every king, every miracle, every prophet, every law, all of that was a shadow pointing us to the reality, preparing our hearts for a savior. And now that Christ has arrived, the reality is here. So Paul's point is we don't need to revert back to legalism because we live in the light of Christ. And when you live in the light, you don't go back to the shadowlands. You don't go back to things that just give you a glimpse of what God is like or a glimpse of what his Savior will be. Instead, you live in his current presence in this tremendous freeing experience that all you need Christ has provided. There is nothing left to be accomplished. There's no work left for you to do because he's done it all. It's a wonderful message of freedom and life to us. And that's the message that we take with us to camp. That's a message that we take with us everywhere we go. Paul goes on in verse 18 to talk about the, uh, just warns us about mysticism as well. In verse 18, he says, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such people go into great detail about what they have seen, and their unspiritual minds puff them up with idle notions. They have lost connection with the head, from which the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Mysticism is the, the pursuit of ever deeper and more personal spiritual experiences. You know, throughout church history, there have always been mystics in the body of Christ. And, and Paul does not here ban us from seeking personal and powerful experiences with God. If anything, as you read through the book of Acts, you see that Paul was a man who experienced dreams and visions who had a, a powerful conversion experience with Jesus Christ. As you read through his letters, you see Paul was a man who operated in the gifts of the Spirit. He talks about tongues and prophecy and these other supernatural words of wisdom and knowledge and, and all of these things, and he advocates for them as a regular part of the believer's life. But Paul is, is warning us in this passage 
that as good and lovely, as wonderful as those things are, we can never allow our subjective experiences to replace the objective truth of who Jesus is. The Colossian church was facing false teachers who were coming in with, with these dreams of, and visions and, and ideas about angels and other things and trying to teach them that there is more revelation, there are deeper things to have and trying to push them out. The idea that, yeah, Jesus is a good entry point. Now push beyond that and, and experience more. You know, for us, it's a, it's a good warning to us. Again, our, our faith is designed to be experiential. You are created not just to know God intellectually, but to experience him emotionally. He created all of you, and so his gospel should affect all of you. But we cannot become those people who begin to worship the miracles and not the miracle maker. If we do, we quickly become those who chase every fad and false teaching looking for the next spiritual high. And again, the, the problem with this, this full embrace of mysticism is that ultimately it causes you to be disconnected from Christ because you no longer pursue Jesus, you pursue spiritual experiences. And so Paul's warning us, trying to remind us, you must stay connected to the head. And if Jesus chooses to give you these experiences, then you thank him for it, you, you celebrate them, but you do not make them a standard by which you judge the faith of others or by which you judge your own faith. This past spring, our, our pastoral staff went over to Oklahoma City for a conference, and we heard a, a lady speak named Alicia, Alicia, Alicia Britt Sholay, I think is how you say her name. But she was talking about this idea about how our experiences relate to God's sovereignty, with the idea that God is everywhere, that he is always with us. Uh, but then she was just you know, sharing honestly about sometimes you really feel that, and sometimes you don't feel it at all. And she was trying to help us process through that. And she made this statement that I think is, is wonderful and, and worth our consideration this morning. She said, our greatest shout does not thicken his presence. And our greatest doubt cannot thin his presence. Because our emotions are not what raised him from the dead. God's spirit raised Jesus from the dead. So feel nothing or see stars. Spend 60 years in a spiritual dark night or spend 60 minutes lost in love in worship. His love for you changes not. He is with you. God is with you. May we align every thought with this glorious and grace-saturated reality. I mean, that, like, we're, historically, our, our movement and Christian chapel is, is a church that, embraces an experiential faith. Like we, we advocate for the idea that God doesn't just want to reveal himself to you intellectually, but he wants to reveal himself to you in powerful and personal ways. We believe that's what the scriptures teach us. I grew up in a, in a church where that was advocated. I mean, just a, I, my youth pastor was one of the most passionate men I'd ever met of just this idea that God isn't just up there, but God is right here in front of us and surrounding us. He's not just supreme overall, but he's supreme in all. And so every time we gather together, we should come with an expectation that we will experience God in powerful ways. But even in the, the midst of kind of that, that, that really intense spirituality, that really intense idea of you can experience God, he would always teach us that, hey, if you never do, though, 
If you never have another set of goosebumps, if you never shed another tear, if your heart never soars again in a worship service, if you never feel God speak powerfully and clearly to you about the direction you're supposed to go, if he never did anything else for you ever again, what he's already done is enough. And he would point us to this idea repeatedly of pursue Jesus, not experiences. If he wants to give those to you, that's great. That's wonderful. Embrace it. And Paul is teaching us the same thing. Again, you think of our our campers this week. And if their hope for salvation resides in their ability to pursue spiritual experiences, many of them will find themselves in hopeless circumstances. Part of our arrangement with DHS to be able to conduct Royal Family Camp is that there is no overt proselytizing in our large group gatherings. So when we, we're, they know we're a faith-based camp, they know we're giving the kids Bibles, we're teaching them Bible stories, we're praying for them all kind of corporately, uh, but there's no like, hey, altar call, if you want to surrender your life to Jesus, raise your hand. We don't, we don't do that. And the reason we're okay doing that is because we believe that as the gospel is proclaimed and as kids talk with their counselors and staff members, God's going to do what he wants to do in the life of each camper. And so it's not then dependent on our ability to create powerful spiritual moments. Those are great, and and we strive to do that at our own kids' camp and our own youth camp. We try to do that on Sunday mornings to allow those moments where just the the stress of life fades and we are completely consumed by the glory and the power of God in in that moment, in that service. But what Paul is reminding us here is all of those experiences only have value as long as they're connected to Jesus. That the moment they become an ends to themselves, they've lost their meaning, and we have become foolish, puffed up, and unspiritual. And so he warns us about that. Then his last warning, I I honestly don't know how much it affects us. It's a warning against asceticism. Verse 20, he says, since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of the world, why as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based merely on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, yet they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Asceticism is the, the attempt to earn God's favor through self-denial. It's giving up the, the comforts of the spiritual world in the pursuit of greater spiritual standing. And so what Paul is telling the Colossians here is that there are false teachers who are coming in telling them as you give up the things from the material world, world, you'll gain things in the spiritual world. And they're pushing for this ascetic approach to life where holiness is defined by how much you give up and how much you withdraw. Now, again, uh, middle class American Christians, I don't know that too many of us are tempted to sell it all and go live in the desert. You're to, to go sit on the mountaintop alone by ourselves. But again, I think it's, it's worth our consideration because the larger point Paul is making here is that these things, which have the appearance of wisdom, he says, they have, they have the appearance of wisdom, of humility, of worship, but he says really they, they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And the, the big point he's making that is worth our consideration is even if you've never been tempted to be a monk, even if a vow of silence, poverty, or isolation has never appealed to you in the least, you still face a temptation at times to think that through behavior modification, you can be brought closer to Jesus. That through controlling your behavior, you can make yourself more worthy of his salvation. 
What Paul is reminding us of here is all of the things that we do out here, in and of themselves, they cannot change what's in here. It says they lack any value. So you can move to the highest mountain. You can go to the farthest desert. You can completely remove yourself from every temptation. And by doing so, you may very well eliminate your ability to act out on the sin that's in your heart, but the sin remains in your heart. And the whole point of the gospel is not behavior modification, it's heart transformation. And so Paul's reminding us, hey, don't don't get too concerned with the do not eat, do not touch, do not handle. Instead, let Christ work in you. Again, pointing back to what he's talked about before. You were sinners, he solved that problem. So rest and relax in that truth instead of getting caught up in all of these other stresses. Basically, in Colossians chapter 2, what Paul is telling us is, you cannot improve on God's masterpiece of salvation. That in Christ, all you ever needed has been provided. Uh, Two weeks ago, when we were talking about the the previous passage, I, I made the comment that, all of our attempts to improve on God's salvation are like giving a, a three-year-old a Sharpie in front of a, a priceless piece of art, right? It's like, it's basically putting a mustache on the Mona Lisa is what you're doing. You're saying this, I, I can make it better. And so just imagine with me that, that you, um, for whatever reason, thought it would be a good idea to take your three-year-old to Paris. And you go to the Louvre and, and you're standing there in front of the Mona Lisa and somehow you have like the, the James Bond three-year-old who's able to get past every security guard, all of the things they have to, to keep people away from the Mona Lisa and they grab the Sharpie and they put the mustache on the actual Mona Lisa. Now in that moment, your child is going to be filled with pride. They're gonna feel like, look at what I did, mom. Look at what I did, dad. Isn't that pretty? And you're going to be horrified, and the world's going to be horrified. And as that kid grows up, they're going to be horrified because they've ruined a masterpiece. Right? They, they, they in, their, in their ignorance, thought they were going to make something better, and they wound up making it far worse. So I, I made that, told that story a couple weeks ago. And um, Caleb Hill, one of our high school students, he sent me a link to a story that proves this point so much better because somebody actually did something kind of like this. So in 1930, in northeastern Spain, there was a painter named Elias Garcia Martinez, and he painted this fresco of Jesus on the, the wall of the chapel where he would spend his summer vacations. And so a, a fresco painting, some of you know this, I uh, had no reason to know it and will probably forget it after today, but a fresco painting by design is uh, a painting that goes on the wall while the plaster is still wet. So the the painting goes up, and then it all kind of dries together, and it becomes part of the building. Well, after about 70 or 80 years, this was kind of the condition of that fresco in this this chapel. And so there was an older lady in the church who asked the priest for permission to try to restore the painting herself. And she thought she would just kind of wash off some of those white flecks, and, and this is what her efforts led to. I mean, just terrible, right? So uh, Martinez's granddaughter knows that she doesn't know that this has happened yet, but she knows that it, the painting is old and it needs to be restored. So she donates some money to the, pre, to the church to have the painting professionally restored. Well, she's donated the money and this poor old lady is, is very upset about what she's done and she decides she's going to fix it herself. 
And so she comes back in to the church, and this time she brings her paint and paintbrushes, and she sets out to fix it. The problem is she has no knowledge, no skill, no training, and really no artistic ability at all. And she winds up turning that into this. So you go from Jesus to Jesus kind of, you know, disfigured a little bit to it looks kind of like a monkey dressed up like a monk. And this granddaughter then comes to visit and is horrified by what she sees. The, the fascinating thing that, like, that's bad enough. You know, from right here, we could stop and make our application of this is what we do to the gospel when we try to add our own rules to it. We completely disfigure it. But here's the fascinating thing. This was a, a relatively unknown painting before this poor old woman did this to it. After she did it, somebody took a picture of it and they posted it online. And it became like an internet sensation in Spain and then around Europe. And what they said is the next year, there were like 50,000 people that came to visit this church because they wanted to view the atrocity, right? It's that, that typical, the same reason you slow down and rubberneck when you go by a car wreck. It, it inspired these 50,000, and it went on for years, 50, 60,000 people coming through every year to try to view this painting. And so as far as I know, it still looks like that. And I think it makes an even better point for us of the, the attraction of legalism. You know, we know the beauty of the gospel is so simple. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There's nothing left to be achieved. There's only his salvation for us to receive. That's all there is to it. That's, that's the beautiful nature of it. But there's something inside of us that just says it can't be that easy. And then we set out and we start to make some extra rules. And we say, well, well, I know that's what the Bible says, but if you're really a Christian, you're going to do this or you won't do that. You're going to follow these rules. And, and we wind up kind of there in the middle where we've slightly disfigured the gospel, but it's still recognizable. And then we push a little farther because we just want to be able to say, look what I've done. And we push a little bit farther into it, and we wind up with this completely marred and disfigured image of Jesus that we present to our world. And the fascinating thing is, our world isn't revolted by that, but they're attracted to it. And so throughout church history, we see these breakoffs from Orthodox Christianity where people begin to add extra scriptures, where they begin to add extra requirements, where they begin to say, Jesus is good, but this makes him even better. And instead of rejecting it as a complete disfigurement of what Jesus came to do, people embrace it as some kind of new masterpiece. And the reason we do it is that there is something deep down inside of us that wants to feel like we have earned our salvation. Our pride wants to climb up on the throne next to Jesus and say, look what we did. But the message of the gospel is so simple. It's no, 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 no. The only part you played in this was screwing it up. You were made in the image of God and your sin has marred that and now Jesus is gonna come to restore it. And that simple message, for some reason, is the most offensive and least attractive. It says it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. It only matters what Jesus has accomplished. 
So in just a moment, we're going to receive communion together. And as we receive it, my prayer is it will be a reminder to us that all we need, Christ has provided. There is no improvement left for us. There is only the reception of his finished work. And so I want to pray for you, and then the worship team is going to come and lead us uh, in a song as ushers pass communion. Then we'll receive that together in just a moment. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the, the simplicity of the gospel. Lord, we ask in the, the coming moments that your spirit would come and you would shine a light in our hearts, Lord, revealing, revealing our pride and our self-righteousness, showing us the ways that we're tempted to add requirements to your salvation, showing us the ways that we're attempting to climb up on the throne next to you. Lord, we just want to lay all that down. We want to come before you humbly with open hands and open hearts to receive your offer of salvation once again this morning. God, to those of us who have received it, who are walking in it, may communion be a reminder to us. Salvation started outside of us and moves to the inside of us. To those who are far from you this morning, God, I pray that as we receive communion together, it would be a reminder to them that you have come for them. You've come to be their Savior. You've come to be their Lord. You've come to rescue and forgive them, and nothing can stop your plan from being accomplished in their lives because it's all about you and your action. Holy Spirit, come and speak to us in these moments. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.